0: In today's episode of Board Game Impact, we're going to talk about all the craziness that ensued at BGG Spring. Josh is going to talk about the games he's been playing recently, talk about some quick news, and then we're going to do a deep dive into the Spiel des Jahres nominations. You don't want to miss that. That's going to take place in the second half of this episode. Stay tuned. Welcome to Board Game Impact. My name is Bruce Brown, and if this is your first time joining the show, I just want to say welcome. Uh, Board Game Impact seeks to combine our passions for the board game hobby as well as the educational lens that we both bring to it thanks to our work in higher education. Uh, So Board Game Impact is not just myself, uh, but is also my buddy Josh. Josh, say hi. Hello, listeners. Uh, So listeners, um, and for those of you who are returning, uh, know that I went to Board Game Game Geek Spring this past weekend. Um, That was the Memorial Day weekend, and I just want to take a quick second before we get into anything of the show. To say thank you, thank you, thank you so much to all the listeners who came out and played games with me and just like wanted to make sure that I knew that they were there because we did do that call out over the last couple episodes and it was so fulfilling to get to meet you in person and get to hear your stories and the impact that this hobby, hobby has had on you and so I just want to say how fulfilling that was and so quick note if this, again if this is your first time listening please do sh- make sure to hit that subscribe because we are building a community here of sharing impacts across this wonderful hobby so that way, hopefully, the lessons that we talk about and the th- experiences that we share are impactful for not just you, but also your entire gaming group. Um, and so, again, thank you so much, listeners, for coming up to me. I know Josh uh, it was sad that he could not be there, but he will be there in time. Uh, we're we're getting him to go to BGG uh, Fall, so BGG Con I'm in downtown Dallas. So that would be fun. That'll be in uh, in November. Sorry. But thank you again, listeners. So actually today we've got a little hybrid episode for you. Um, And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about games we've been playing recently. Um, Then we're going to be going over a quick news segment with some quick updates. But really the focus of this episode, Josh, is actually I'm going to be giving the mic over to you. And I had the opportunity to really play through all of those Spiel nominees that Came out. So since the last recording, the Spiel des Jahres, the German Game of the Year Awards. uh, So there's three different awards. So there's the Game of the Year Award, which is very family approached. uh, Good for pretty much all ages. Then there's the Kenner Spiel, which is for all of the gamers. Like this is like the more hardcore award for gamers. And then there's the Kinder Spiel, the kids or children's game of the year. So they had all nine of those games. So in that, the second half of this episode, we're going to be talking through all the games, all nine of them, as well as calling ourselves out on the predictions that we had right, but also the majority that we had wrong. <laughs> uh, um, so with that, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Josh to say hi, but then also to lead us into something he's been playing recently.
1: Sure. Uh, once again, hello, listeners. Welcome back. Um, Bruce, welcome back from your vacation Yes, I am, in fact, uh, quite disappointed that I was not able to make it out over Memorial Day weekend, though I am um, itching to get back to Dallas. Um, hopefully, uh, we're going to knock on wood that I will be there in November for the uh, main BGG Con, and we'll hopefully get to speak to some listeners there. So, Bruce, the first game I wanted to bring today is actually a game, a little bit older of a game, one that we have played together a couple times, dating back to my first BGG con experience uh, two years ago, and that game is Merlin by Queen Games. Um, Merlin is designed by Steffen Feld, and I'm going to blank on the second designer on that game right now. Um... I will look it up for you. Keep going. Thank you. Um, so Merlin is a game that is based on a rondelle. So you are taking a worker and moving it a, around a circle track on the board, um, taking actions based on where you land. The name Merlin comes from the Athorian uh, legends. Um, you have both a knight, moving around the board, which you control. You also have a Merlin pawn on the board, which is shared by everyone and is moved uh, once per player per round. Um, That's kind of the unique aspect of this game, is this kind of shared uh, player pawn that is being moved around. Really, really interesting game. I actually got to play this um, back to the table for the first time in a while. And actually, for the first time, probably in about six months, because that is when I first got the expansion Arthur, Mm. which adds another shared pawn on the board, a black pawn, which represents King Arthur, which is also being moved around and shared by all of the players. The game, like a lot of Steffenfeld's other games, is often described as a point salad. Um, it is a game designed where you can make points in a variety of ways, doing a variety of things. The point of the game is to see who earns the most points. The theme doesn't really exist. It's kind of fun to talk about, but realistically it's really slapped on here. Um, There's not a lot of theme to this game, but it is really, really fun, interesting gameplay. You're making some really interesting decisions. Do I move Merlin now and guarantee myself this action, or do I maybe wait and see what my opponent does with him to... See if maybe I can get a better action. There's tiles which let you manipulate your die rolls um, to to better move your pieces or Merlin. A really really great game. This is one that tops my list uh, of favorite games. Actually, um, there's I, I think people either love this game or they hate it. Um, but for me, this is this is one of the best. Steffenfeld games that i've experienced for for me at least and for a lot of the people i think that i've played with and bruce i know that i've played at least a couple times with you Mm -hmm. i don't know if you have had a chance to play any other times besides those or what your experiences with merlin have been
0: yeah so um first of all the other designer um is michael reineck uh so michael reineck um so Steffenfeld is a designer it's made making games since 2005, which his first game was Roma. Um, we're actually going to be talking about Steffen Feld during the Spiel section because he's nominated this year for one of his games in the Kenner. I'll let you wait to hear which game that is. Um, but he's come up with a lot of other really famous games, so like Burgess, um, really famous for Castles of Burgundy, which last time I checked is in the top 10 on Board Game Geek. Um, mm-hmm. So here's the thing about Steffen Feld, first of all. Um Steffen Feld was my wife it was her first introduction to like Euro games. And I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. Cause I got castles of Burgundy from my board game geek, secret Santa. He's like, you have to play this. Okay. Santa. Um, so he did that and my wife fell in love with Stefan as a designer. Um, and so when she came to BDG spring a year ago, uh, we actually sat down at the queen booth and played Merlin and she, she's like you have to buy this game like you you have to buy it now i'm, I'm going to echo exactly what you just said josh and that some people think merlin's kind of they like they like it but it's not it hasn't risen to the level of some of steffenfeld's other games which is fine like we've all got our own flair and if you go back like maybe 10 episodes of the podcast actually talked about like some of my history, family history and why that inclines me to also like night games. Um, And so like a K N I G H T games. Uh, But I actually really enjoy Merlin. Um, It's got a lot of components and that's like the one thing that's kept me from really getting it to the table is just getting all of it set up. But once it's set up, like, heck yeah, we'll play. Um, it goes really well Two players. I like the fact that, so it is a roll and move game, but the way you can use those dice, like Josh was talking about, is really, really cool. Um, and it only take go, takes place over six rounds, and there's a lot to explore. Now, I haven't gotten to play with the expansions, um, so I'm very curious as to what that added besides the other pawn. Um, but... I know, uh, Josh, you were going to talk about later, um, the fact that they just had a Kickstarter that actually funded the day of our recording today for the next expansion after that. Um, so Merlin's a game that's still, it's still kicking. Um, and it's got a lot to offer.
1: Yeah. I, I, I did back the second expansion, uh, which is as a Knights Knights of the Round Table, which, um, it's, it looks like this new expansion, the the Knights of the Round Table gives each player, some unique uh, choices to make throughout the game that are specific to that player. So huh. you start the game by drafting two knights hmm. that you control by yourself, which give you each knight gives you a unique ability that only you have throughout the game. Hmm. So that I think adds some kind of unique aspects to it. The other part that the um, that the Arthur expansion added was uh, just again. It's a Steffenfeld game. It added some new ways to score points. Um, so it added this uh, picked track, which um, you can go out and attack the picks and conquer the picks, and those will score you some more points each each time the, the game scores. Again, I, I think this game has a lot of legs to it. I do agree it has a ton of setup and components. I was actually commenting as I was setting it up that this is the next game on my list. I think that is begging for a an insert? So something, yeah, we talked about viticulture last time. One of the reasons I never got viticulture out was for that exact same reason was the setup. Mm-hmm. I got an insert to it, and now it's come out three times since I bought that insert. So I think having an insert to make that setup a little bit easier is definitely something that i'm I'm gonna be looking into for Merlin because it kind of, Getting this back to the table, like I said, really for the first time in about six months, really rekindled that love of, of the game for me. And I'm really excited to to see what this new expansion brings to it when that does come.
0: Awesome. I look forward to checking it out. Um, yes. So I got something very different. So not a board game, actually, to talk about. But it is still a game. Um, and so it still counts, listeners. Um so besides for board games, I also dabble in role-playing games. I've been playing D&D. Josh, I know you play D&D. Um, I've dungeon mastered some games. I know you do that too. Um, but I've also played like Monster of the Week. And honestly, so one of the guys that I've been, one of the couples that I've been playing with here, um, they just had a kid in August. And so getting a regular campaign set up hasn't really been a thing. And so one of their friends who I met, um, actually, because they attended BGG Spring last year, they flew in from California and attended. They loved it. They just couldn't come back this year. Um, he, he's like, here's the deal. We got to get a, something going. How about we try a one-shot? So for those of you, of you who aren't familiar, a one-shot is where you're not doing a whole campaign. You essentially roll up a character right then and there, and you do a one-off story that has no connection to anything else. But this wasn't like D&D. And this wasn't any of the other systems I'd ever used. There's actually a subreddit called uh, RPG One Shots. And so it's like R slash RPG One One Shots. And on there, there's free one-shot campaigns, uh, one-shot adventures you can do. Um, and so I'll put the links to this in the podcast notes and listeners if you want to go check out any of those subreddits. Um, the one we played, so there's one one of them was like good cop, bad cop, you play as a partnership. Um, We didn't play that one. There's another one that's like you all play as grandmas. We didn't play that one. We played the one called The Witch is Dead. And what it is, is the, um, you are a woodland animal. (laughs) And what you do is uh, what the story is: is you are all familiars for this one witch that lives on the outskirts of town, and a witch, and you're going about your day just fine, and then a witch hunter came by and killed the witch, and you know of a potential way to bring her back to life, and that is to take the eyes of the witch hunter, whoever killed the witch, and do this little thing um, it's actually like really got really nice graphics and stuff for this it's a literally one sheet of paper for all of the rules for all of the things you need to roll and so we rolled to figure out the history of the town we rolled to figure out what kind of character we are and then what type of hedge magic our witch taught us and so for me i rolled that i was a crow um which gave me a couple basic things on like being sly right because a crow um, not as much as the cat, though, um, but I was also able to like be quick because I was a bird. Uh, but then I was also able to cause distractions. And so what we had to do is we had one week in game time to go and find this hunter and then recover the eyes and bring them back. Um, so it was actually a really, really fun experience. We played in all of two hours, and that's including r- learning the rules as well as rolling for our character, which, Josh, I know, like, that never happens. We completed an entire story in two hours. It's really all an art of improvisation, but it brought out some cool things in players um, by trying to act like, okay, well, how would a crow, a, a dog, and a cat interact together? And how what would they do when they go into town? And so it was really, really cool. Um, so I actually pulled a, to d- cause a distraction, I was like, I want to be like one of the birds on one of the Windex commercials. And I want to fly into the wall just to distract them because it's like I didn't know there was glass, quote unquote. Um, And so it was just a lot of fun. And Josh, I know you've played role-playing games before.
1: Does this kind of thing interest you? You know, I think the thing that interests me about this the most is what you just said in terms of the time frame. Two hours to learn a rule set, Develop characters and play a game to conclusion is pretty unheard of. I mean, right. uh, I think I probably take twice that long just to roll up a character um, in Um, D&D. I've had less experience with other um, systems than than you have, Bruce. Um, I I kind of keep in that D&D wheelhouse uh, for the most part, but this is definitely something that I, I, I think is interesting. I, I think it's a s- nice way to learn some new systems and learn some different mechanics. I'd definitely be interested in giving this a shot. I think um, the the only thing that would prevent me from doing this is, is just my group, game group. Yeah. Um, I have a group that plays board games, and I have my group that plays D&D. The only reason I've never done any other type of RPG is, is that learning curve. So I think that this might kind of help get over that hurdle a little bit, something like this that is a little bit easier to learn, easier to to manage. So I'm glad that you, it sounds like you had a good time with mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I did. Um, everything so you I, do,
0: everything I did, it's you roll a, a D10 and then the DM, the, the, the dungeon master or game master picks a threshold like you have to beat a six where nine is super difficult. And then they just pick the most appropriate skill that you're trying to add to it. So it's either clever. It was quick, fierce or sly. That's it. it like, so I would actually use it to maybe introduce the whole concept of role playing and like that improvisational, improvisational storytelling. Um, but the original author of it is Grant Howitt. Just want to give him credit. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So let's switch back to board gaming though.
1: Sure. Uh So I'll go from a game that's been sitting on my shelf for a while to one that actually just made it to the shelf. Really excited about this one. And that is Feudum. I believe uh, it was a while ago now that we actually talked about the expansion to Feudum Mm -hmm. on this podcast. And I had mentioned there that while the game sounded really intriguing, it sounded right up my alley and something that would probably, but probably something that would sit on my shelf for a while. Um, So I wasn't willing to spend the money. I was actually able to get my hands on a Kickstarter edition copy of the game. Really, really beautiful. The artwork is just phenomenal. The components, especially some of the Kickstarter exclusive components, are just phenomenal um like i i spent a good chunk of time when i this came in just playing with the components they're they're really really nice um and surprisingly did not sit on my shelf all that long managed to actually get it out twice in the past week to nice. hit the table um, once as a two-player game once is a three-player game in that order I, in that order I will say it was better as a three-player game than a two-player game. I honestly believe that really this needs to be a four- to six-player game. Okay. Um, the It is technically a two-to-five. There is an expansion that can add a six-player in, which I was lucky enough to get with the game. And the... The reason I say that it it probably needs to be at a higher player count, so one of the unique aspects to this game is you are putting workers out onto the board and your workers are a die. Hmm. And based off of which side of your die, your worker belongs to a guild. And then your guilds are around the board. And so the more workers you have and the more of specific types so, uh, of land you control so let's say you have a farm worker out and you own a couple farms you increase your standing in the farmers guild that makes sense um, or you have a royal um, person you have a royal pawn out and you have a couple towns hmm. so the towns plus your royal worker add to your standing in the royalty guild okay and so you're trying to manipulate your standing in these guilds and and there's some area control. There's some um, economics going on in terms of how you trade. I could probably talk... Well, I did. In explaining the rules to people, it is probably an hour and a half to teach this game. Woof. That's not playing it. That's just teaching it. It is because every rule requires an understanding of another rule Mm. it is brain burning it is deep it is heavy it's probably a good two to three hours play time on top of that learning time but i think it's really really good game design i think is really interesting it's exactly the type of game that i want to play it is not going to be for everyone right i will own that just in terms of the complexity the length it is, it is not going to be everyone's cup of tea. But I think it's really, really good. In order to be competitive, though, I do think you need to have a higher player count. Okay. I think that the two to three players just makes the ability for one person to control a guild a little too easy. Sure. And I think that... Now, I haven't played enough to really understand all of the depth to strategy of the game. I will own that. But I think there appear to be some strategies that are more likely to be successful when it is a lower player count. That makes sense. So, so I highly recommend it. It is an expensive game. but Yeah, but you didn't buy it, right? I did not. So I used BGG's Marketplace uh, tool. Um, so BGG has a system where you can list all of the games that you own. You can also list all of the games that you would like to trade. You can create a separate list of games you would like to receive in a trade. and then they will the website will generate for you a list of people who, they'll match you up basically yeah, e-harmony so, yeah it's great <laughs> um i i would not used it before the downside to it is you do have to end up paying for your own shipping shipping board games can get kind of costly that's a large game it, it is i was actually lucky enough um i have been trying to similar to bruce you posted about this in in the Facebook page you Marie Kondo your game collection. I
0: did. I did by a lot. And I'm going to talk about that when we talk about uh, Board Game Geek.
1: Yeah, I I kind of did a similar process. And so I got I was trying to unload a lot of games and was able to trade a good chunk of games for I think I traded 15 games for like five back. And in the process, I—it was with a specific company that that specializes in trading, so they were able to get me a discount on shipping, which made it a lot easier to hmm. to manage that. I got rid of a lot of games that I don't play, okay. and got four, yeah, four new games that that I'm really looking forward to. Um, Feudum awesome. being one of them.
0: So I assume. They're all not just, like, giant games, because Feudum's giant. They could be, like, smaller games and a mix of some medium games that they balance out to kind of make it an equitable trade. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so I, I did. I got Feudum. Um, I got another bigger game, Empires of the Void 2, um, and then two medium-weight games. Okay. Um, so, so, And then all of the games that I traded were relatively smaller, lighter-weight, or um, older games, okay. but it really worked out, I think, in my favor. Like I said, it achieved two goals of mine. It got me four games that I'd really wanted, but not had not been willing to spend the money on, because at least two of them were more expensive games.
0: And spoiler alert for later, when we talk about me purging my collection, um, not because I don't like the games, it's just I had a lot of games, and I wanted to slim things down. We were running out of space in our house. And also, I want them to go to homes where they're going to get played, right? And Mm -hmm. so I actually, my ratio is more like 50 to 3. That was my ratio from Board Game Geek, and I'll talk about that here in a little bit. Um, Interesting. The game that I am actually going to talk about now, Josh, though, is very different than Feudum. Um, So yours was where all the things are interconnected. So this game still has that interconnectivity, but this game I play in about 20 minutes. And that was Tiny Towns by Aldrich Entertainment Groups, or AEG. Um, This was essentially the game of the convention, and I did message AEG and let them know that, of like, you couldn't check this thing out. You had to find someone with one of the two copies in the library, find them, sit with them, wait till they finish, make a new friend, walk with them to the library. They checked in the game. You checked it out. Like, that's the only way you got to do it. Unless you were like me and I found somebody who also had a copy and I was just texting him of like, when can I borrow it? Um, but then after that, of course, then I got to check it out of the library, of course, after like two days. Um, so Tiny Towns is a really fun puzzle. Um, It's a very quick game. You can play with one person or up to six in the base game. How it works is you have a grid in front of you as well as a whole bunch of resources. Now, this is going to sound like I'm explaining Catan, but I'm not. Um, So you have wood. You have brick. you You have wheat. You have... Or, but then you also have one other resource Um, and I can't remember exactly which one that is right now but essentially what happens is you take those resources and let's say it's my turn Josh and you and I are playing I would say okay we're all going to take wood and we each take a wood and we put it somewhere on our grid then you would go, and you say whatever the heck you want to choose. You can be a wood. It could be a glass. That's what the last resource is. It could be any of the others, and then we all have to take it. You have to, and you have to put it on your grid. Now, why you're doing this is there's a display of seven different buildings. So there's the cottage. There's the essentially farm. There's the essentially like a citadel type thing. All seven of those have a little Tetris design on the bottom of them. And so it might be a little Tetris L where it has a brick, a brick, and then a wheat, and then a wood. And that, if you have that arrangement on your grid, you can say, I'm going to build. And you collect those three spots, and then you take that respective building, and you put it in one of those three spots. So here's the thing. Some of them, though, require like six or seven And so as you get more and more buildings on your little grid, you have less and less spaces where you can put a cube. And so you keep playing um, until you can no longer take something or build, um, so you can't do anything else. There's no space left. And then you will remove all of the resource, the cubes, that you have left on your board, and then you'll get minus one point for each of those. But you'll get a lot of points off of your off of the other things. So like the cottages um, of the seven, what's really cool is the cottages is always the most easy one to build and it's always the same card. The other six each have their own deck of four cards. So the variability of you'll never have the same exact game again is high. Like like That's awesome. Um, and so every time you play it, it's going to be slightly different with hallmarks of the same thing. So if you're a group that likes roll and write games, if you're someone who likes having that Um, slight take that by like like giving yourself something I'm going to take a wood and you're not going to want wood but you have to take it Um, or you just want to spend a good like 30 minutes with a nice little puzzle and regardless if you win or lose you feel like I just built a town Um, this game is going to be for you AEG did a phenomenal job with this game. Um, Every single one of the buildings is a different uh, piece of wood in a very nice color, in a very nice design. It looks really good on the table. It has people flocking to it. Um, And then the art that's on the cards, all those cards I was talking about aren't like these little, like, Uh, playing size cards, they're full-on tarot size, so everyone at the table can see them real easy, as well as they have really nice art, and so like, if it's the monastery-looking thing, it's got these little, like, chipmunks in a a monk suit, and so it's really cute, too. So if you're somebody who really digs, like, cool or different art, so we talked about Raccoon Tycoon and other games, like, you're going to like this game. I honestly can't say enough about this, and then the price tag is only, like, 35 bucks.
1: Uh, that was actually my, my my comment I was about to yeah. make here. Um, I'm really, really glad that you were able to, to get a shot at this. This has been a game that's been on my radar for a while now, probably three or four months, um, really since it came out. Um, and I, I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. I've just kind of been hanging out, waiting on it. Uh, it looks really, really good. It looks very light. Um, which was my concern, was if it would be too light of a game for what I typically get to the table. It sounds like that is not necessarily the case. It sounds like the mechanics are pretty simple. Yep. But but probably the puzzle is pretty complex. So I was
0: actually playing this with a, a BGG uh, team geeker, um, and he actually went to BGG, Um, just to play solo games because Mm. he's like, I'm really into solo games. The library here is incredible. There's a lot of games I've been wanting to try. And so he came for that reason and wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, with a very funny avatar that I'll tell you after this recording because it is not really appropriate. <laughs> um, but anyway, so he sat down with me. I'm like, hey, let's, we got 30 minutes. Let's play. And it was the only game him and I got to play. And I'm very thankful for it because he's like, man, this is like super easy. And then like two moves in, he goes, oh, my God. And so this is a guy who always plays solo games. So he's used to this whole like solving a puzzle. That's what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, but even he was like, there's a lot of depth here. Um, I ended up beating him by a single point. Like, we were super close. Um, but, yeah, so it's got a replay, a lot of replayability. If you want to learn the rules, um, there's even a watch it played. So Rodney did a watch it played for this. Um, so that way you can learn it. So highly recommend checking out those Tiny Towns by AEG. Great.
1: Um, definitely something been on my list to purchase for a while. Definitely going to have to take another look at it. Um, so Bruce, I do want to briefly jump back to a game we talked about last week, um, because interestingly enough, we, we had talked about a, this is a Kickstarter, another, um, time that we talked about a Kickstarter and immediately after I decided I had to get this game back to the table, I said I was going to do it and I did that game is Endeavor age of sale. So, listeners, um, for just your knowledge, um, we talked a little bit about it last episode. Uh, Age of Sale has a new, or Endeavor has a new Kickstarter coming out. Um, it should be launching in the next couple of weeks, I believe. Yep. I think it's June fourteenth. Yeah. So, so about two weeks from now, from the time of this recording. And Endeavor is a game. It takes place in the Age of Sail. Uh, in which you are playing as European powers, um, trying to make trade negotiations with different continents to set up colonies on different continents to take resources and um, to collect victory points, really, at the the end of the day. Um, You'll earn points based off of... If you are the governor of certain colonies, they will award you certain points. If you have a higher rating on your building or cultural or economic track than other players, you'll get victory points. You'll get points by owning trade connections. So if you have ownership of a uh, of a outpost in say, North America, Ownership of the shipping lane from Europe to North America and ownership of an outpost in Europe that connects those. You'll score some points there. Really kind of a neat way to set up this game. It follows some really interesting historical context. So one of the yeah. things that um it's interesting. I, I didn't realize this when they reprinted the game there's actually a piece they talk about. There is a mechanic in the game in which you can utilize slaves. And one of the interesting things reading through the rulebook again is they actually explain why they left this mechanic in the game, even though it may not necessarily feel good. And I think part of that is it's not supposed to feel good. It is supposed to be make you feel uncomfortable because you get a really nice benefit by taking those, uh, resources, but it will hurt you in the end game. It most likely they will be negative points for you at the scoring, but there's also this really uncomfortable feeling of like, I could shoot ahead early on and score a whole bunch of points, but it feels weird and it feels uncomfortable and it, it has this kind of impact uh, of getting you thinking about history in in that way of putting yourself in this position of do you make the quote-unquote economically smart decision or do you forego that option, ignore the fact that you will potentially lose out on some victory points because it feels better and you, you feel above that. So it, it adds this it sounds like they did it well. I in my opinion, yes. I think especially rereading kind of the the publisher's explanation for why they chose to keep the mechanic I I think it it makes sense. It works. It elicits some emotion from players reasonably so. But I I think it is done in a a a way that gets people thinking sure. outside of the game itself.
0: So I gotta, I just got to ask. Um, so some ways that some games approach some things like this, and I've actually seen a recent game review um, that you and I can talk about after the show that goes into this about a different game where essentially they glorify that time period and just say, like, this is what it was, right? Um, mm-hmm. But in this case, it actually seems like, no, we're not going to whitewash it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're going to recognize that this was a thing that happened, but we're also going to recognize that, you know what, in the end, like the game itself is going to say like that, that was a bad choice. It's some mm-hmm. short term gains for you, but it was like morally bad. Um, and so like, it sounds like they did a good job of like being correct in the time period, but also meeting it with where we are today as a civilization.
1: Yes and no I will okay. give I will give a downfall to sure. the game of I think it still does a little bit it addresses the slavery okay it doesn't necessarily address the colonialism.
0: gotcha so they got one, not both not both <laughs> okay
1: if you can look beyond that, the game mechanics are really good. the sure. game mechanics are solid. it's a fun little so. The way the game plays out, you build a building each round. Yeah. You build a building. That building becomes an action, which you can take utilizing workers. You gain workers after the start of each round, which you use on those spaces, which will allow you to make trade actions, take colonize actions, attack your opponents to take over their colonized spaces. The mechanics are good. Okay. The theme can feel a little iffy to people. Sure. Now they also added in the reprint, um, the, a, a separate mechanic, which I did not explore fully. I was teaching the game to some new players. And so I just wanted to teach the base game. Um, so I haven't had a chance to explore all of what the age of sale reprint has to offer. Um, but this is, stuck itself in my game bag and I, I am dedicated to to getting a couple more plays through playthroughs in before the Kickstarter releases because like I said the gameplay in this is really, really solid. If you can acknowledge that there are some problematic issues with the time frame and the yeah. time period that that the game works in. I, I think there there's a lot of depth of gameplay there um, so yeah, I again, probably something that some people won't enjoy because of the theme sure and thing that's fair
0: absolutely absolutely and I thank you for I thank you listeners for kind of letting us engage in some of that talk. Um, I know that that can be a little touchy, but honestly, you i said at the beginning josh and i both approached this from an educational lens so i'm glad that we were able to dig in there and see how they were able to talk about the one topic but also address the other aspects of not talking about the colonialism but also the fact like regardless of those two things they're not glorifying it that's really just there's a good game here and these things happen in those time periods but i like the fact regardless that the designers put it in the rule book and actually talked about it. Um, They're not going to just put it in there and just be like, yeah, it was a thing. Um, So I like that intentionality, but uh, listeners, that is your kind of warning on that. So if that is something that it's not going to work with your game group, just know that. Um, But also if you bring it out and you're like, let's see how this goes, understand that the the game might indulge some people to go into a conversation about that, which also like really healthy for society.
1: Yeah. And and I, I will say the, the two times that I've played this, um, so I, I got to play the original 2007 version at BGG Con two years ago, and then this is the first time I've actually managed to get this to the table since uh, the the reprint uh, over the, last summer. And both of those times that that the ta- that the game is at the table, it, it does elicit those conversations, and you do kind of. And and it's interesting. Everybody's like, I feel weird about this. The game is fun, but I feel uncomfortable and weird with what is with the theming. And I'm just going to call it
0: a good sign of a healthy game group is for you to be able to engage in that tension. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like if there's something going on negative in a game group. Well, do you say something like, are you friends to the level of being able to engage in conversation? Um, because like, that's something we should be able to do. Um, and so I'm going to move us on, but because I think we've yeah. talked about the topic a lot, but I do like that we had it. Um, yeah. So I got one more game for us and then we're going to go into some quick news and then we're going to take a quick break and talk about everything BGG. Um, but I have one more game that I played at BGG. Um, I'm not going to be talking about the games I played outside of the Spiel games at BGG. Um, so this game, I got to play with um, a guy named Michael. Um, Futiles is his avatar. And I'm specifically calling him out for a reason. And that is because if you go to the Board Game Impact website, you'll notice that my picture has now changed. And I am holding this giant Captain America shield. The thing is actual metal. Um, and that is Michael's Shield. So Michael does this thing called Extra Life in which he flies to different conventions and actually raises money for Children's, uh, children's Miracle Network and um, also like children's hospitals, like a really good cause. Um, and he does that by playing games, um, mostly Crokinole, and he hustles people at Crokinole. Um, But Michael is a wonderful human being who I've now known for the last two years. And Michael went all in on Batman Gotham City Chronicles by Monolith. That was a big Kickstarter. Very big Kickstarter. And as a Bruce, I am very inclined to the Bruce Wayne variety and the Batman. Um, I just do not have the funds to back something like that. He brought... All, I think it was seven boxes of this game, and there's about a hundred miniatures that are all pretty much <laughs> different. And here's the thing: He painted a third of them. Oh wow. Yeah. So if you were looking at some of the pictures I was posting during BGG, that was Michael's game, and I got to give him credit for the amazing job he did on the miniatures that we played with, as well as including the one we didn't play with, and that was the T-Rex that occupies Wayne Manor. Um, Yes, like the T-Rex is a thing in the game. Um, but he, he painted out all the heroes. So we got to play with fully painted heroes. We got to play with a fully painted Bane and some of the other villains. And he keeps sending me pictures to tease me about all the other villains. So Gotham city Chronicles is a board game though. <laughs> Let's get back to the gaming, um, in which you are essentially, it's like games of old and this is how Michael would describe it. Michael said that what got him into gaming is games like HeroQuest where one player plays an Overlord-type character, and everybody else is against that character. The Overlord controls all the minions. So in this case, he was controlling all of the villains. And then we were each controlling our own independent characters. So I was playing Batman. I was playing Robin. I was playing as Bluebird several other characters because we played a couple times. And so we were going through different scenarios. Like, the first scenario is we're in this, like, blown up kind of subway station and Bane was there with the owls so if you're familiar with Batman lore that's why I'm talking about this um and there was bombs spread out so what we had to do is we had to disarm 4 of the 5 bombs by 7th the 7th round and which was very difficult and how we did that is we had these little cubes and we had a total depending on your character between like nine and 11. So I had 11 because I was Batman. He can do more things. Um, And you'd move those cubes to different little spots on your player board. And then however many cubes you roll there, uh, how many cubes are there plus any kind of bonus that spot has is how many of a different colored dice you have. And you'd roll those dice and however many successes is what you have. And then he has this player board, his own player board with all the villains on it. These like cool little tiles um, that he can allocate his little, Cubes for to give him extra bonuses, give him some extra defense, etc. Um, so it's really fun to kind of go back and forth. Michael memorized the different scenarios that we were playing, and he would feed us like we were playing a role playing game of like, okay, you've done this, now this happens. How, what are you gonna do? Um, so that was really really cool. As well as Michael had little character sheets for every single character in the game, and I'm talking like a giant stack of these things and all of the special actions that they, they can all do. He knew what all the icons were, everything, everything. And for those of you who have ever played Conan, which had a, also by Monolith Games came out a couple of years ago, that game works off of the same mech- mechanics. And the reason I talk about how he had all these things prepared, because without that, Josh, we could not have played this game. Hmm. The rulebook for this game, i.e., I, I, there's like four rule books. The scenarios themselves have little lo- like logos, because it went for an, its own independent um, iconography. So that way, do- it could be language independent, not language dependent. And so there isn't really a place that explains what all of those logos are, except in the back of the one rulebook. But that's mm-hmm. also the same rulebook that has the layout of that map. And then another part of the rulebook has, because you're on this different terrain, and so we were on this like catwalk. And it was like, we didn't know until, because he explained that it was two, like it's two story elevation down to the main floor. And we were going to get hurt if we jumped off. The only way to know that is to flip back and forth. So I'm very thankful we had somebody who knew all the things. And then on your player board, which has this little insert that has your character with all their special icons, there was nothing explaining what all of those icons were for each of the players. And because you needed to look in that rule book that's already being looked at by somebody else to look at something on the board. And so the fact that he went through the time to print out and then laminate all of these individual character sheets, which honestly should have been something in the base game. It should have come with the character sheets, like Too Many mm-hmm. Bones did does, where it has character sheets for all these individual characters because there's so much to them. So there was a lot of, a lot of rule checking uh, that we luckily didn't have to do that anyone else has to do there's a huge barrier to this game which is super sad because this thing has the production quality of it's phenomenal like this game was built for kickstarter it has all the looks it has all the pizzazz but then they t- didn't pull it through with the actual core mechanics of the game and we had to execute everything pretty much perfectly in order to get things to work so I couldn't just be batman and things up. I had to do the strategic things. Now here's the deal though, Josh. Um, I know I've been talking about this for a little bit and I know I just went into this big rant. I still had a lot of fun, but I had a lot of fun because I had somebody that m- reduced those barriers for me and was there to support me. And when I had questions, he wasn't playing the role of, no, you need to figure your stuff out. I'm not going to give you a hint. It was no. Let's have a fun time together, like like the same conversation we just had about Endeavor Age of Sail, where it's like no. Let's actually come together and like help each other out. Let's talk through things. Um, Michael came at everything from that lens, and like he is a good friend, and I am so thankful. And honestly, he lives up in Dallas, and I might just take a weekend drive up to Dallas to play through a couple more campaigns of this, and to play through a couple more of the little scenarios because it was. I had that much fun playing this game with him, um, but I can I can easily see this game not flying in a bunch of game groups unless you have that investment, unless you have those things. And a lot of people can't do that. Um, This game is Kickstarter only, um, but they are coming out with a season two of this Kickstarter very soon. And they've already announced some different villains and some different things they're throwing in. Um, It does have a couple other story modes you can do where you're each that overlord character controlling a suite of characters, not just one. So there's a lot of layers to this game, a lot of things if you have the ability to have that investment. Um, but again this that has a lot of pizzazz it looks freaking gorgeous um but they just didn't in my opinion didn't follow through on things for the average gamer
1: yeah i i passed this up real i to be honest i I passed this up on kickstarter because it is it was ridiculously priced um this game to go all in was was a huge chunk of change several hundred and and i i like comic books i like superheroes batman was never my favorite i'll just own that but you know everything about this game looks phenomenal like like you said seeing pictures of it on the table it looks great it looks fantastic um you are not the only person I have heard that the it is not intuitive in terms of the um, the way in which the board is laid out, right? Your your iconography is not ideal, um, I think would would be the way way to say that. But it sounds like your experience is is one that that I could see really working for a lot of people. It, it reminds me a lot of an RPG. We talked about playing RPGs earlier in, the, in, in this episode, right? I personally, I, I started DMing. I've, I've only DMed a few one-offs. I've never done a full campaign. And even then, it was several years after I had been playing the game and I had learned through osmosis how to play the game. It takes a special person to pick up a dungeon master's handbook, a monster's manual, a player's handbook, and all of the other material for a D&D campaign and read a good chunk of that and learn all of the rules and figure all of that out just by reading. But if you've been doing it and you've been playing it for a while, and this is the type of game that it looks like you could get a lot of play out of this without owning a lot of other games, you could, you could really dive into this game. So yeah, I, I I agree. It's not something that I don't think I would ever want or need in my collection, but it sounds like if you have someone in your group who is willing to put in that investment on the front end to learn all of those rules and learn all of the kind of fiddly, intricate Ways in which the the board interacts with the players and all of that it it sounds like it it can elicit a lot of fun if you have that fun delivered to you in a more digestible manner,
0: yeah. And so like, that's really what it comes down to. And I think you just said it really well. Um, but I do just want to just again, say thank you, Michael for doing all that. Cause that's not something a lot of gamers have um, and have access to. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll see you again soon. Um, <laughs> uh, that all being said, that's the games for right now. Uh, we do have two quick things of note for business, and then we will be taking a short break. Um, so, Last episode, um, or the episode before that, actually, it might have been, um, we talked about the announced potential tariffs, and it's still at this point potential tariffs on board games, dice, all that kind of stuff from China with this trade war, essentially, that's going on, and that the open forum for that is going to be taking place on June 16th, I believe. Um, so this is not a thing that's a thing yet, but the they have come out with the number, and that is 25% tariff. And so, again, that's on the cost of the manufactured goods. So if you the cost of manufactured goods is $50, when it hits the states, it's going to get hit with an extra 1250 So mm-hmm. that means that most likely prices, you will see an increase, um, maybe not to that extent, but some sort of increase. Um, two goods from China on the board game realm. Now, I've listened to a couple other podcasts and i talked to a couple people in the industry, and there's about 80-plus percent of board games in the U.S. that are made in China. So this is like a big deal. Now, the problem and the reason I wanted to bring this up for a quick news segment for the listeners is because I've been getting reports from people from game stores as well as publishers as well as XYZ, other types of where you'd get a game, where they're already announcing to their customers about this tariff getting into place, warning them about the price increases, and in some cases, already increasing the price. It's not even fully a thing yet. Now, in talking to one publisher, I just asked about this real quick, They said, well, here's the deal with some of those games. They may be having to pay at the docks um, for that. They can't offline the cost. And so they may be increasing their prices because they might not have the cash flow in order to pay that initial burden. Um, So that's where that might be coming from. Um, But listeners, I do... And, Justin, I just want you to know that this is happening. Um, this has some big implications for some smaller publishers, for some Kickstarters, as we talked about. So if you want to go more in-depth on all of that, go back a couple of episodes, check that out. Even check out the Facebook page where I link the article for you there. Um, but just want you to be aware as you go into game stores, you might see a higher price than you expected. Um, and this is not something, oh, well, the game's going to still be cheaper on like Amazon or an uh, online retailer. No, th- they, they're still having to get it into the United States. And so you're going to be seeing some of those prices go up too. And so if there's something that, I'm just going to say this, if you've been meaning to pull the trigger, you might just want to do it um, just so that way you're getting it a little bit cheaper um, if that is a concern for you. Um, but if not, hopefully this is a short thing. This is not something that's going to go on for long. I know there has been some huge outcries. I know Gamma, so the Game uh, Manufacturers Association, uh, has been talking about this and, and lobbying against it, and, and they're going to be sharing some, hopefully, some things pretty soon, but just wanting you to know. Um, the next thing, Josh, I'm going to kind of let you take, take it away with this one, because we've talked about this game a lot, and you've talked about it a lot more than I have. Sure.
1: Um, so the next thing, listeners, and I don't know why or how this has slipped my mind to not mention it before now, because this has been Rude. a thing for a while. We we have talked a lot, or at least in three episodes now, about the game Wingspan. Um, I, I think... For folks who have been around or listeners who have heard us talk about it, I'm not going to go into the full rundown. If you're new to the podcast, please go back, download, and listen to those episodes. Wingspan is a fantastic game that came out at the start of this year. It has been in high, high demand that has been hard to keep up with. One of the things that has happened with the game is... Some of the cards were misprinted. There was a mistake in the... Uh, as people were going through and editing and, and double-checking everything, some things slipped through the tr- cracks. Some of them were pretty simple or kind of funny mm-hmm. um, spelling errors. So there is between with three E's.
0: Um, Technically one four. Of the,
1: Technically four. Um, There are (laughs) between (laughs) Um, at least one of the birds was labeled with the wrong name. Some of the rules were printed. Not clearly. I, I think it was not enough that it would have negatively impacted your gameplay, but the points were just a little bit off on one or two of the scoring cards Based off of the percentage of cards available in the deck with those, there's just some little tweaks and errors. It affects, I believe, 20 cards, and there's probably close to 200 cards in the deck. Yep. Um, I, I don't have. I think it's 174. The so the effects are, are relatively limited. Almost none of them have any direct effect on gameplay, really, except for maybe some rule clarifications. But one of the great things that Stonemeyer Games has done is made this made a card update available to owners of the game for a penny. You can go to the Stonemeyer website, you can pay a penny, which essentially is the way I understand it, the uh, sales website or the sales platform that the website uses utilizes says you have to have a financial interaction for selling something on your website. And so the penny is legitimately it is we have to have a financial transaction to make our website work. And you pay for shipping, I think. I did it actually through a different website, um, yeah. along with some. So I purchased a couple inserts, and mm-hmm. it actually completely eliminated the shipping cost of the cards whenever I bought inserts. But Bruce, it, it looks like you paid uh, four dollars. Four dollars for for shipping and one penny. <laughs> and it's it's it's, it's really it was
0: really nothing.
1: It, it's really nothing. Um, again. It's, it's not going to affect gameplay all that much. It's not necessary to make the game better or anything. But if you do own the game or are looking to purchase the game, just be aware that it might be, you might have some funny misprinted cards or um, slightly confusing wording on one or two of the rules if you don't get this. Um, but if you go to the Stonemeyer website, you can uh, get access to that those reprinted cards.
0: Well, here's the thing too. So if you're getting a new copy of this, if you're getting the next printing, it's going to have all this updated in it already. So just mm-hmm. check before ordering. Um, and actually, my wife has asked me to leave the between cards in <laughs> um, just because she lo- loves the fact of it's like a bird saying it. Um, and so that's really what that comes down to. All right, listeners, we've talked about a lot. Um, and so with that, we're going to be taking a quick break. And then we're going to come back and come back and talk about the uh, very quick overview of BGG and then go through the spiel nominations. All right, we can't wait to see you after after. after the break. All right, bye. Okay, listeners, welcome back to um, to Board Game Impact. I'm here with Josh, um, your fellow co-host, and we just were talking through all the news and other updates that have been going on in the board gaming industry, uh, as well as a bunch of games we've been playing recently, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, But now we're going to talk about All the fun, um, and that is because we're going to talk about the uh, Board Game Geek Spring overall experience real quick, and then we're going to talk about the Spiel des Jahres. Um, And so, Josh, I'm going to kind of give a quick rundown of what Board Game Geek was, all that stuff real quick, um, and then give the context of where all this comes in. Then I'm going to turn the mic over to you to kind of lead the listeners through this whole kind of exploration of the Spiel.
1: Is that all right? Please, please do. Take it away. Okay,
0: so board game Geek is a website that, if you don't have an account on board game geek, just go to boardgamegeek.com. It's essentially the repository for all board games, um, period. It came out in like 2001, 2002 by a guy named Scott Alden, and after a couple of years, like, let's have a convention, and so that's where they started with the BGG con that takes place in November. And then about five years ago, they started up this more family-oriented one, smaller one, called BGG Spring. Um, And so I say family because the other convention, you have to be older than 12 to go. And this one allows in people under 12. And actually, um, if we were to have kids like my wife can't wait for that day to happen to like go with kids to this convention, uh, because there's a lot they do for families and support families, um, which is really, really cool. Both conventions have a library of games that's exactly the same, pretty much, except timing, so some new games might get added, but that library of games is about 6,000 games. That's not all the games that BGG owns, and pretty much all these are owned by Aldi. There's also this big storage because they're going to get thousands of games in a year. Um, And so they will constantly curate what's in that library. Uh, But there's games that are really expensive that you can't find anymore. They're out of print or they just came out. Board Game Geek is going to have it. Um, So it's a wonderful weekend to get to try and play all these different fun games. And like it's almost like I dare you to try to play as many as you can. And because there are so so many, and so I know one of our friends posted that she played like 21 different games in four days, uh, which is incredible. I did not play nearly that many. Um, the couple of there really aren't many events at this convention like other conventions like Gen Con or things like that, and it's really not trade show oriented nor vendor oriented for the spring one. It's really just about coming together as a hobby and playing games like it's awesome um the there are a couple events though that do want to talk about so one there was a poker tournament that i always participate in um it's just a fun little way to connect with people um that happened the first night uh play for a couple hours i suck at poker but it's a fun way to come together because there's a rule this is if you are that guy or that gal that like you go to Las Vegas all the time or Atlantic City, like this is not the poker tournament for you. there's a lot of people here who are just learning how to play, so it's a really fun time, and those people who are that person end up taking a new role, and that's teaching people how to play poker. So I appreciate the the kind of the head fake on that. Um, I talked about how the library is huge. there's also a huge amount of storage and last year at BGG spring, Aldi um, decided to cull, so remove games from the storage because they were running out of space because they store the storage, the geek store, as well as the library in a literal airplane hangar. And they're currently looking for more a new space, um, from what I've been told. Um, but they needed to make room for all the games that are coming in. And so Aldi decided, well, if we're going to do this, let's do it for something. For a good reason. And so he found out about a nonprofit called cafe momentum in the Dallas area. Um, and Dallas, like many other metropolises has a pretty high juvie rate, um, of kids going into juvenile delinquency and then actually having a high recidivism rate. And Josh is kind of your more, more your speak, um, in which, cause Josh does some, does dabble in conduct at universities. Um, recidivism, right? So the likelihood that essentially somebody going back into that system or committing something mm-hmm. again, um, and it's really, really high um, for kids who are in juvie. And so this one guy then came up with this idea, well, are they really given any options? Are they given any training or trade skills, et cetera? Because a lot of places won't hire them as a kid, and they're needing economic opportunity. So they created a nonprofit called Cafe Momentum in which they pretty much only they have internships for People who've been in juvenile detention centers to learn trade skills and they cycle through running all the operations of this cafe. And uh, f- the numbers in Dallas, the Dallas area, have significantly been improved because of this uh, nonprofit. And the recidivism rate is extremely, almost non existent. Um, it's almost like zero for um, anybody who has worked there. So it's absolutely incredible work going on. And so Aldi found out about them. And uh, so Aldi has his avatar name on BGG. So if you ever see him commenting, he's got like the um, Will Smith robot movie robot as his avatar. Um, that's Aldi. He's a wonderful human. Um, but anyway, so he's like, if I'm going to get rid of these games, let's have it go for a good cause. And so they sold games for $10 a game. And So I got some Ryan Lockett games. I got some... I got two games in the in the in the charity and the storage sale Um, the next day they put those games up for five dollars and then they also had some very rare games so I actually got to see a first generation power grid by freedom and freeze that had a different name that had a board that looks nothing like what it looks like today it had dots on it and it came with a pack of crayons because you actually made your little Routes and had so you <laughs> each had, yeah, it was phenomenal. You could buy that for like a hundred bucks because, like, that makes sense. Um, it, but it all went to a good cause, and they actually raised fifteen thousand dollars that weekend for that nonprofit. So, wonderful, wonderful um, thing going on. Josh talked earlier about me Marie Kondoing. So, if you have not watched um, Marie Kondo's special on Netflix, I encourage you to do that. So, what it is is essentially you take all the items of the same item. So, let's say it's board games. Because who would who would do this? But I did it. Um, and you take all the board games in your abode, in your house, and you put them in one place, all of them. Yeah, they could be on the shelf. Take them off the shelf, put them in the on the on either the bed or, for my case, the table. You put them all in one place, and you go item by item and say, "Does this spark joy?" Now here's the problem: games are made for entertainment, so it's really <laughs> hard to say. It's really hard to all say them, no. All yeah, all of them spark joy. Bruce. Like, yeah, they all spark joy, and also it's like the precious um, from Lord of the Rings. No, so <laughs> all these games spark joy. But my the question I added to that because that wasn't enough. I had to ask, but is it adding value in my collection? Am I going to play it again? And would someone else potentially get a lot more use out of this than I am? And so it had to meet those questions for me. And so of the games that I have, I literally purged more than 50 games from my collection. And I got to tell you, A, I was like, this is gross for all these games when they were in one pile. But then I was able to beautifully put the games I had left into the shelves perfectly. I had no games. I had games like on the floor in the past, in the closet. Like all my games fit perfectly, neatly on display in the game room. And I just felt, liberated doing okay that.
1: bruce enough shaming my board game collection <laughs> exploding all over every room of my apartment you're good and we this
0: can- this type of thing is not for everybody and i'm gonna <laughs> absolutely say that but for me it was good and for us it was good now how i got rid of the games because that's like st- purging is step one i really just put them in another room that room looked gross for several days actually a couple weeks um how I purge them, though, the Board Game Geek has two different avenues for that. Um, the Verse is a virtual flea market, so you can go on in a couple months leading up to the convention, and people will post games for sale. This is actually a, a forum that's actually led by some people who are just volunteering their time. And <laughs> you can post games for sale. And you can also go on and purchase games um, or, like, bid on games. So some people do it as an auction. Some people just offer, like, here's the price. I'm kind of firm on it. Um, And then the other thing, and then you have an hour meetup at the actual convention to, like, trade games. That place is a cacophony. Um, Then there's the board game bazaar, which used to be called the flea market, but that was confusing. Um, So now it's called the board game bazaar, which is essentially you can sign up to have a table and then you set up your your all the games you're bringing for display, and you've posted notes on them. And what you do is you're there, and people they have, there's one hour, and people will walk through the room, and they'll offer you prices. Typically, what happens is people typically slash their prices at like the halfway point. Um, and so I started the bazaar with like 43 games, and at 55 minutes, I got rid of every single game I brought. And then I bought one game in the virtual flea market and I got two in the charity sale and then I got one for attending the convention. So I came with 40, almost 50 games. I left with four. And I'm very excited about the four I have. And I had people come up to me after the flea market and the bazaar of like, hey, I just want to say thanks because you weren't trying to like gouge us for prices and stuff. It was just like, you really do just want these games to go to good homes. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. Um, and actually, it helped pay for part of my experience of going to the convention, which was also nice. Um, so that's how I did all that. But the reason, besides the family-oriented stuff, and I know I've been talking for a little bit, but this is where we're gonna uh, really flip the script. The one of the other reasons that made sense for Board Game Geek to make the Spring Convention is because of this whole Spiel des Jahres. Uh, nomination process, German Game of the Year Awards. So on the 20th of May, those games were announced so for those three categories that we talked about before. So that's the Kids Game of the Year, the Gamer Game of the Year, and then the Game of the Year. Each of those have three different um, games nominated for them, and they also have to be uh, published in German and have to be available. And they cannot be an expansion, and they cannot be just a replant of an older game. They have to like be a significantly new game Um, and so that is everything that goes on with that. But the reason that ties back to the convention is because at the convention, they had two of the actual judges from the Spiel des Jahres committee, um, at the convention, as well as two other assistants that kind of helped out because there was another judge, I guess, who couldn't come last minute. Um, and so there was people from, essentially 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And they typically came early and they typically stayed late to teach you every one of those games. These people love teaching these games and they just want to see this hobby grow. And that is just wonderful. And this is really, it's the only place to have all those games available set up 24-7 for anyone to try. And they're all set up actually on the on Game Topper, so it looks super, super pretty. Um, so with all of that context, um, Josh, I'm kind of going to turn over the main mic to you and kind of let you take it away.
1: Sure. So, Bruce, um, A, I just want to say, I'm, again, just how jealous I am that you you got to go to, to BGG Spring. Um, I, I find it really interesting that they are doing BGG Spring around the Spiel des jar nominations, because um, if I'm not mistaken, they've traditionally tried to make BGG their normal... Uh, convention in November, roughly around the time, uh, or o- October, November, around the time of Essence Spiel, so that they can get a lot of those games brought over as well, if I'm not mistaken.
0: You are not mistaken. That's 100% correct. So the convention in the fall is like one of the conventions to go through. Two in the United States because Board Game Geek has a presence at Essen. They will go around and they literally ship over a pallet of games for people to play um, at BGG Con. Um, there's always a little bit of stress with the with everybody that runs the convention of our is the pallet going to get here in time um but it mm-hmm. but it does um it gets there usually about a week early and a whole bunch of volunteers actually help get all of those games punched and ready for that convention the next weekend so it's a very big yeah. undertaking but eschen spiel has about ninety five thousand people that go to it and it's called essen because it takes place in essen and spiel means game <laughs> um, as josh pointed out last time um <laughs> And so that yeah, that is a huge, huge convention. It's the largest convention in the
1: world for gaming. So yeah, so so I, I like that they're they're trying to match up the the BGG conventions with these Eurocentric or, or European centric game events that drive a lot of interest in in the states, but may not. Be able to. People may not be able to access the games that are brought up there, um, necessarily at other conventions uh, as they are at, at these conventions. So I think that's a really nice, nice thing that BGG Con is doing for, for folks in the states.
0: Yeah, because some of these games you might not be able to see get printed in the states, and if you do, it might be a year to two years. So these are going to be the hot games like a
1: year out. Yeah, I, I think Queen was actually a great example of this. Was one that was released at Essen. I. The way Merlin. overpaid, yeah. I or Merlin. I, I way overpaid Merlin for Merlin when it, it came, but I I enjoyed it that much. So yeah, I, I think it's. It, I would have had to wait another eight to nine months after I had bought it to get it in the states. So yep. really appreciate that they do that. On to the Spiel nominees though. We talked a little bit about what the Spiel de Jar is. I I mentioned last episode that Spiel de Jar is the is German for game of the year. So it is the German game of the year. Um, there are three categories as Bruce mentioned and they must be printed in German language and available in Germany at the time that the award is presented and published, uh, either the current or previous year. We discussed last week, uh, we recorded our last episode, I believe, two days before the um, spiel nominees came out. Yep. And we made a lot of wild predictions. Six Um, of them. Yep. Six of them. Two out of six, not bad. Yeah, two out of six, not bad. Really not not bad. bad. Really, really not terrible. I will own that I, I anticipated Wingspan being nominated for spiel. It was not. Correct. It was nominated for Kinnerspiel. Correct. Uh the gamer game of the year. But we did accurately predict two of the three Kinnerspiel games. Wingspan being one, the next a prediction by Bruce, which was Detective, uh by Ignacy Chevichek. Yep from Portal Games. And then the final Kinderspiel nominee, which neither of us mentioned or really thought of, was Carpe Diem by Steffen Feld Feld from Aaliyah Games. And Steffen Feld, uh, the designer of Merlin, which we talked about earlier in this episode, um, really phenomenal Euro game designer. Um, I, I have not had a chance to play... Carpe Diem or Detective, obviously. We've talked about it enough. I love Wingspan. Wingspan. But Bruce, tell me a little bit about Carpe Diem and Detective. Were you able to get them to the table? And what were those experiences like? Okay, so as
0: I said, they had these games set up before anybody even walked into the convention. There's three tables with each game set up, and they were set up 24-7 which was incredible. And then during those windows from like eight to five, the German judges would come around, but you could also at your table, you could put up these players wanted sign or teachers wanted sign and someone who had already played it will come by and teach it to you. So that was really cool. Um, So a quick caveat on detective, a modern crime board game. Um, So that game is essentially you are playing the role of a, a police detective um, but you're doing like the admin paperwork stuff. You're actually like l- writing out clues. You're looking. You literally had. I, ha- I actually set this up. Um, there's a com- there was a computer on every table, a laptop, because the cards in the game will have a little Wi-Fi symbol to have you actually look stuff up on different websites. To try and put together the clues, and so there's photos of law online of people putting like this big mind map, like you'd see on a TV show, of like who done it, like connecting the dots, uh, which is really cool. Now the the reason I say there's a big caveat with this one is because the base game was not something people were trying at the convention. Hmm. What people were trying was a Manila envelope, so like a a brown khaki envelope, like a harder cardstock envelope, called Case Number Six. So they were not actually playing the base game of Detective. And why that is is because if they enjoyed this demo case, they didn't want to spoil the base game, if that makes Mm. sense. And so what players had to do was be like okay well this is kind of how this plays i don't know how these cases line up to the cases that are in the base game but i can make inferences on what the place to play is going to be like it and if it's something that would interest me okay um and so that, that, that's why there's the big caveat there now i will say that that case that they had there i saw some players there for several hours um, and there definitely was some approachability struggles by some players because of having a laptop there and they're like, what do I do with this? So in those off hours there wasn't as many people going over there when the German judges were around and could teach it, there was definitely people at those tables wanting to check it out. This game has won a ton of awards already and been nominated for a ton of awards. Um, what's actually funny is I watched last week I watched a because uh, Ignasi, does a YouTube channel um, inside his company. Um, And he's like, well, here's the deal. It's Monday. We were just preparing our announcements for our public service announcements for all of our award nominations for the Dice Tower Awards. And then I got about 15 phone calls from my publisher and I decided to finally pick up. And they're like, you just got nominated for the spiel. And he felt like in shock because he's like, we have nothing prepared. (laughs) Um, And so like this is huge for him because there's only been one other... Designer from his country in Europe that has ever been nominated. So like this is a huge, huge deal for them, and I think that's really great. Um, and so Detective is really cool, but you you do need to have a group that's going to want to do that like mental mapping, and you're going to want to take a lot of notes. And so if that is something that interests you, then look at Detective. Um, if you have played. Um, some of the more like Sherlock Holmes games where you're reading like the newspapers and you're having to pull out clues from that. It has some hallmarks to that, but you're looking stuff up on the internet. So having the computer in front of you and being able to like type out and look stuff up, you typically had one person that was designated to do that. It felt really immersive because that's the stuff we do literally every freaking day. Right? Like I have my laptop, I carry my laptop all over the place. And so I felt like I was actually working this job.
1: So so Bruce with Detective so yeah. with the 6th case did so I think that's a really cool way to have introduced this at uh, a convention which allowed you to learn the rules of the game without quote unquote, spo- quote unquote spoiling the the mystery right, right. cuz this is played over 5 cases then the the That's what I assume I actually don't or, really know I, I, I assume I would assume, so, So, right, A, I think the other caveat that I would put on this for our listeners is I really struggle personally with getting legacy, long-term, ongoing games to the table, right? I We've talked about Charterstone and some other games that have been successful doing that, but if you are dedicating a group to... Five two hour ish games, then then that is something to, to to put in consideration as well.
0: So I just got to clarify something: the cases do not stack. Okay, it's kind of like a um, escape room. So if you were to play unlock or exit, they're all their own independent things. And so you are detectives working different cases. The oh, cases is not of the same. Yeah, it's not of the same person. Sorry, I did not make that clear.
1: No yeah. yeah I that's that's because there are some other games out there um, that follow a similar vein where it is more serialized and it may not be you're investigating the same person but you're investigating the same mystery exactly so so I think yeah that that makes a lot of sense I think but also makes the game a little bit more approachable probably for folks who who can't necessarily dedicate, with a full group to do the same thing over and over. Right. Um,
0: but it is a group puzzle, so it is fully cooperative. Um yeah. And so just know that. And so that was, it was a very, it was a very st- standout different game from the other games. I'm just going to say it that way. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um. So Carpe Diem, I'm going to switch over to that one. Carpe yeah. Diem, if you have ever played a Steffenfeld game, this one is tile placement. So similar to like Uwe Rosenberg. But how you get to place your tiles is by moving your little pawn, guess what? Around a rondelle like Merlin. But there's one caveat here, and that is that essentially there's these pathways that connect different sides of the board. It kind of looks like a pentagram in the middle of the, of the rondelle. And hmm. so instead of walking around, you can walk across. And because each space only has a certain number of tiles that are placed there, and so once it runs out, you can actually bounce your character off of the empty space to another to its next connecting space. So each thing has like a triangle coming off of it. Um, and then you're taking the piece that you get from that spot, and you're putting it on your player board, and then there is actually every player has this little sheet that is like, you're going to get points for these things, and then points for these things, and then points for these things. Uh, but a lot of the points don't get added up until uh, like the end of a round or until the very end of the game. And so um, I actually saw some people play a um, – so I actually saw Lincoln um, from Board Game Geek who does – he's on game night and a couple other things, and him and some other people played this, like, with one of the German judges, but, like, a speed game. They played it as mm-hmm. fast as they could. It was actually really fun to watch because, because like like – Euro games, you can sit there and math it out. They're like, let's have fun with this, plus we're in a time crunch. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. let's see what they can do, like make this puzzle real quick. But it is essentially a point salad tile laying game. Um, They are going to be coming out. Apparently, this is what I've heard. They're going to be coming out with a new version of it because this is ugly as sin. It's it's ugly.
1: I would like to say I'm surprised, but I don't know of very many... Feld games right. that aren't ugly as sin. Right. And but Merlin is, is one of the few exceptions to the Steffenfeld makes ugly games rules.
0: Yeah. The game is really more about like we're gonna make we're gonna make this game well, game with these mechanics and like paste it on theme. That doesn't really matter. It's just your tile laying. Um, and so like, yeah, it was it was fun. Um, but it, it's essentially another
1: feld game. So I'm hearing Rondell, I'm hearing tiles.
0: Yes, and are point there, salad.
1: And point salad. Are there die involved in this game? Not that I used. Interesting. So a little bit... It, from what I'm hearing, it sounds a little bit like a combination between Merlin and castles maybe some of Castles of Burgundy.
0: Yeah, but not as much restriction on where you can play them. Except it, it's actually kind of like... That's Thank you for bringing that up. It's kind of like... Merlin with an UE Rosenberg twist for tile Mm. placement, but that tile placement is like Carcassonne. Okay. Where you have to play tiles that kind of match the tiles around it in order for it to be Mm. a legal placement. Um, Otherwise, it's kind of just a wasted piece because you can't really do anything with it. Yeah. So it's essentially that's the combination of what you're seeing there. Um, Uh, and And it's a gray box. And the t- the boards are like this muted color. It 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 needs art real bad, real real bad. I, again, you you can't be surprised. Yeah,
1: for, you you can't be surprised. I am also, if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't think Steffenfeld needs art. I I am that's perfectly, true. Steffenfeld could make a black and white board game. I would play it and personally right. enjoy it. That's not going to be everyone's cup of tea but i really enjoyed the the interesting way he utilizes mechanics and and this sounds like another hit i yeah am really disappointed because this was out at bgg con in november and you
0: just missed it it is
1: it probably for that same reason it looks so boring i probably did not look at it um but definitely one that that I'd be interested in in checking out. Um, Sounds like something that the Spiel judges would traditionally go for in terms of the intricacies of the mechanics.
0: Yeah, and so that's the thing, too. Um, So, yeah, this game, it's a Feld game, and so I should have recognized that from the get-go. But, like, also, I kind of just want our hobby to evolve a little bit, and that's kind of where some of that's coming from. So, from an approachability for a new gamer, they're going to be like, this is Ugly, and it,
1: especially when it was sitting right next to Wingspan. Yeah, like one of the most those
0: tables were next to each other.
1: <laughs> one, arguably, one of the prettiest games that's come out in in a very right. long time.
0: Right. However, for the category for the gamer game of the year, a lot of gamers can just look past that and be like, "It's a really good game." And so the, there's that. Um, I think yeah. the kind of consensus is that. Carpe Diem might take it because it's the kind of game that typically takes it. Detective might take it for its innovation. And then Wingspan might take it for its impact on the overall gaming community.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great uh, a list there for, for them. It, it kind of touches on, on three very unique games when compared to one another. So I'm actually gonna jump down um very quickly. Yeah I know we spend a lot of time on that, but I, I do want to That was just, the biggest
0: category for our listeners. Yes, I, I do wanna touch on
1: Kinderspiel, so our yes, kids please. Game of the years. Just in case I I I don't have kids. I may or may not one day have kids, but I, I do think I have games in my collection I know that I hold on to for the time when my nephews are old enough to game with me. And so I, that may be the case for some of our our listeners out there. And and if you are listening with families, welcome. Um, so, Bruce, talk a little bit about what kid games did you, or family games, yeah. did you get a chance to, to experience while you were there? And so,
0: listeners, the other reason we didn't really talk about the kids' games in the last episode is because I'm just going to call it these games aren't usually ever in the United States until after this award I'm um, just gonna call that and so really the only way to know what's gonna be nominated for this is to be in Germany and be playing those games and then to see what's nominated um, so there was three different games um, and then I'm gonna give a quick spoiler after that um, so and I'm gonna butcher one of these names I'm just gonna say that right now and so I'm just gonna get that one over with uh, tau uh, is this game from Haba. Haba makes it's got that big yellow border they make are known for making really really great kids games and this game is by Marie and Wilfred uh, Fort Uh, but it's Talder Wikinger Talder Wikinger
1: Talder Viking Viking, Viking Vikinger
0: yeah -er. Vikinger and so this game you're flicking things Um, and so what it is is you have this little paddle and then there's these little barrels in the middle of the board that have this recess spot uh, that are cut out for them. The barrels are each in the colors of the player, so there's red, blue, yellow, green, and you flick a little cannonball at these barrels. Whichever barrels fall over, so essentially you're bowling. Whichever barrels fall over, you move those color tokens on this other recess track at the top of the board that like a spot and they will leapfrog things. And there's uh, once somebody gets off that track, then you score the ones that are there. And so it's like this little action thing of if all those recessed spots on the top of the board have a corresponding icon with it. I'm just going to call it, this game is super light. It's really just bowling. And that other thing is just kind of it on. Um, I don't think, I, I hope that this game doesn't win. Also, from a family point of view, I'm just going to say it. I wouldn't want a kid bowling. <laughs> on the game table, like if we're gonna bowl, I'm gonna get like the little bowling set. I'm mm-hmm. just gonna say that now, and I hope it doesn't get picked for that reason because I think there's some families out in the world that are like, I don't want to have to clean these things up. Let's just have an experience in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm gonna save my, fav- my save my favorite game for last. Um, so the next game was Fabulantica by Marco Trebener. Um, that's put out by Pegasus Spila. Um, this game is actually like really cool. Um, so you had so. Josh, I don't know if you've ever done this, or listeners, you ever done this. Growing up, I used to go to the beach all the time, and I used to have one of those buckets that looked like a turret of a castle. And I'd mm-hmm. fill that bucket up with, like, wet sand, and then I'd turn it over, and, like, here's my sandcastle. Those things, but, like, miniature shot glasses. On this board with little pathways. And what you did is you had these little, like a princess little standy, cardboard standy, a king little cardboard standy, and other standys. And you'd cover them up with these little, like shot glass um, sandcastles that are all bright, dark, bright yellow and thick. And they'd be moved around randomly on the board for a random setup. And you have to go and find the different people.
1: So a little three card Monty action. Yeah, a little three card Monty
0: and hidden roll. Yeah, or (laughs) hidden movement
1: yeah teaching our kids to to hoodwink the the local neighbors
0: yeah so it had like a fun couple different elements coming out there uh apparently it has some hallmarks of some older games sounds like a fun little experience um so i definitely could see that one working and also it has some really great art and also i could see his family's just really liking the table presence but that's a lot of little components to keep up with yeah the last game Oh my God, I had so much fun with this game. We played it twice. Um, We played this on the last night of the convention and we played our heart's content. Um, Met up with some random people and we're like, we're playing this. And this game is called Go Gecko Go by Jurgen Adams uh, from Zock. And so this game is awesome. Um, This game is essentially limbo meets a conveyor belt. <laughs> like that's okay. the best way I can put this. Okay, so everybody it's a racing game. Everybody has four little tiles um that are well, they're not little, they're they're decreasing in size. So you have a big alligator and then you have a turtle and then you have a oh what is the creature? I cannot remember it right now. And then you have a little gecko. And they're smaller and smaller tiles and they're brighter colors. And what happens is you roll two dice, and on those dice are the different colors of the different tiles. And let's say I roll two blues. Well, then I could roll move my blue one twice. But if I roll blue and a yellow, and the yellow one's a little gecko, I can either move the blue one once and the, or the gecko once. Okay? Okay. So what's really cool is... If you happen to, let's say I already have the blue one, which is the biggest one, already on the board, and then I move my gecko on top of it, big ones can carry little ones, which is cool. But then there are these these little like limbo things that stick up and across the board, and there's four of them that come with the game. You only use two, and they're different heights. And guess what? Depending on how many things you have stacked up, it might not fit. But you can't move your guy or gal or turtle through a one of those things by rolling the dice. You actually take a little leaf cause you're walking, you're going across a pond, like a little stream and it is a recessed board and you take your tile and you push all the tiles in your whole stream and you push them under the limbo thing and whatever doesn't meet the barrier gets pushed off. And so every time that happened, we broke out into song and dance. We're like, push it real good. It was phenomenal. Um, And so it's a racing game where you're pushing the things along. And the only way to push is if something is about to go under. This game was a ton of fun. There's also another die that you also roll with the other two, and it's the weather, and so if there's a lightning bolt, something can get scared and jump to the next one. Um, So it's a cool way to move things up fast. Uh, There's also the sun, which illuminates the dark side of the limbo limbo pole, and so anything that's in the dark area is now illuminated, and so they scurry, and they scurry up one. Um, And so it's like you might make other people move up. This game, like, this, you were talking about games to like hold on to for win with kids. This is the game. You're talking about a game that you also might want to play just because like it's a light game and it's going to be a lot of fun with adults. This is the game. <laughs> um, this is the game I hope wins. Um, a lot this- of people think Fabulentica is going to win. Anybody who is also an adult gamer who is willing to play kids' games, I think, wants Go Gecko Go to win because it is that cool. It, this game it, is it awesome. looks
1: like a lot of fun and looking, I'm looking at some pictures right now and just the, the, the tiles and the pieces look great. And, and the, the frog is what you were looking for there, thank Bruce. You, thank um, you. Thank you. So you have, you frog have your, your alligator turtle frog and gecko. Yeah. Um, no, this looks really, really fun and light. I will definitely be keeping an eye out. Um, my my nephew turns 5 this year so we'll see this might end up in his uh christmas present good idea a, at the end of at the end of this year
0: that's yeah. a very good idea now here's the thing josh and here's the spoiler thing i talked about so i actually talked with one of the judges for a, a while and so i was like so how is it demoing all these different games and he goes well the kids games are way more complicated than all the games nominated for the game of the year, Spiel des Jahres. They've got a lot more going on because the ones for Spiel essentially were um, like party games. And we can talk about that here in a second. Um, But there was a lot more rules to understand and learn for the kids' games, which I thought Mm -hmm. was like an interesting moment. (laughs) Um, And that was essentially the consensus also of everyone at the convention
1: well and and I did want to mention this um, we I, I did save the spiel for last because yeah. it is kind of the the big game it's a and big deal I I'm just gonna call it right now so I know two of these games I don't really know the third no one one knew of the them third. one of them is a game that I've had my eye on for a while. I will own that. But I'm, I am a little disappointed with the nominees for spiel this year. I, I understand why they are what they are. I understand that they nominated games because of the way in which board games are going. Right. Outside of gamer games, which I think continue to get more and more complex and deep and interesting board games within society as a cultural phenomenon outside of the, quote unquote, board game geek culture are party games more and more every year. Yep and i I think that this year is a recogni- this year's nominees are a recognition of the impact that party games are having on the broader cultural impact of board game the board game hobby
0: yeah i one hundred percent agree, and I think that's very well said, and there actually is some people that have come out over the years and say, well, the spiel games are getting lighter and lighter." But that's because they're getting more and more approachable. And so you're absolutely right with that. And so here's the thing Um, if someone's going to Board Game Geek convention, they're a gamer. Like they've been a little bit around the blocks, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That being said, (laughs) that being said, this might not have been the convention for these games with what I'm about to say. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I'm about to say is actually something I predicted as soon as I saw all these games nominated and that is and I was worried about it and then it came to fruition Um, and that was there was a good portion of the days where these tables sat empty because people were playing heavier games Um, they are playing Mm -hmm. more of the Kenner Spiel games they are playing games in the library Um, these games though at night would start to see some presence because they're gamer games uh, they're, they're lighter games, and so the party game atmosphere. And so real quick, the games are Llama, which is the game no one knew about, no one at all, um, but this game by Reiner Knizia, who also made Modern Art one of my top 10 games of all time. Um, who It's actually Dr. Reiner Knizia. Um, he has his PhD in mathematics and has made more than 600 games. Um, but uh, And then we had Just One by Ludwig Rudi um, and Bruno Sauter by Repo Productions, and then Where Words by Ted Allspatch of Bézier Games. Um, so Llama, real quick, just going to run through these. Llama is the game no no one knew, like, what the heck is Llama? Um, and it's capital L-A-M-A, and it's got this goofy-looking Llama looking at you on the box. It's a little card game. It's Uno with a Reiner Ryan, Ryan Canizia Twist. Um, so essentially what it is, is you get a hand of cards. I believe it's eight cards. And on your turn, you uh, there's one card in the middle. And whosever turn it is, uh, let's say it's a, a two. They can either play a two or play a three. Or if they don't have either of those things, draw a card. If it gets up to six, well, then you can play either a six or your llama card. Which resets the pile down so you can start playing ones or keep playing llamas. But once someone plays a one, you can't play a llama. So you can never go down. You have to keep going up until it resets with a llama card. Here's where the game gets interesting, though. Um, so let's say you're getting lower on cards, and someone is, has a hand. They're like, I'm probably not going to get to play this card. They can take an action, and what's that called? What, is, what happens is they put the cards face down in front of them. That is signaling that they're they're stopping. So everyone else keeps going, but they can no longer draw cards. They must play from the cards in their hand. Now, what's interesting about it is whatever cards you have left in your hand, what you want to do is you want to get rid of all of your cards, all of them. Because any cards you have in your hand are negative victory points. So if you have a one in your hand, you get one minus one. If you have a six in your hand, you get six negative points. If you have two sixes, you still only get six negative points because it only is one version of that card. If you get stuck with a llama, that is minus 10 victory points. The game ends when somebody hits negative 40 points. There are no positive points in this game. The point of this game is to have the least negative. Whoever has the least negative wins. Yeah, I played this at three player, I played this at five player, I played this at six player. You want to play this at the higher player counts, not the lower player counts, because it's easier to kind of count cards or kind of predict. Um but yeah, you just play and we play in about ten minutes. That's the entirety of the game.
1: So so I will say of the of the games that are Nominated. I think this is the gamiest game. Yeah, um, you're that's right. Of and that's you why described. I wanted to
0: explain it first. Yeah, Wh-
1: which is interesting because this barely, I think, fits the the description. I think Uno with a twist is a great way to describe this yeah. because this is a game I could probably teach to my five-year-old nephew yep. and, and have him pick up and understand the point of the game.
0: Uno with a twist and golf scoring.
1: So I yeah, I think that's a an interesting um choice here. I, I'll be interested to see where the judges go because I, I do think that is the gamiest of the games. Yeah. Um Just so, One. Yeah. So if you want me to Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Do you want I, me to I I was gonna say the the why don't we jump to the next one on the list yeah. here, which
0: and I'm gonna go through these next two real fast. Um mm-hmm. so just one is a um game it's a cooperative style game but it's really just an activity i'm just going to call it this is really not cooperative except you're trying to help the person so it's that overlord style where one person and then everybody else has a different role one person puts a card on this little essentially nameplate in front of them it's got five numbers on it each of those numbers has a word next to it just one word um not like two words just one so that's where that name comes in and then uh, what happens is they'll pick, like, three. And so we were playing with a four-year-old who picked uh, princess. It, it was, it was her, she picked four, and it was princess. We did curate. And like, why don't you pick number one or number four? Because she was a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. She picked um, four, so it was princess. And so what happened is we all took our Expo marker, because it comes with a set of Expo markers, and we wrote on our nameplates one word, which you can also do a number if you want to, And then what happens is we showed them to the other players who also wrote their words once they finished. If two people wrote the same word, those words don't get shown to the person. And all the other ones get shown to the overlord type player. And they have to try and put together what the original word is. Um, And so for princess, you might put in like, Elsa or Anna, um, because there was like because she was talking about frozen type things. You might talk about Disney. You might talk about those kind of things. We are not sponsored by Disney. Um <laughs> I had the word manure. And so people wrote like cow, farm, barn, got nothing. Because the words that were helpful, like fertilizer. All two people wrote that, and they both got turned down, and so I didn't get those clues. And so the goal of the game is to, as a collective, you have a pile of 13 cards, and there's a lot more than that in the game. You just deal yourself, as a team, 13 cards, is to get as many of those uh, cards actually guessed correctly as possible. and It's got a little scoring thing. The last game is Werewords. Um, Werewords is a play on the game Werewolf, which is also by Bézier Games.
1: It, it, i believe the same designer it as is well. the
0: same designer um however werewolf can sometimes if it's like legacy or things like that might pull in someone different like rob davio mm-hmm. um werewords is werewolf so if you've ever played if you haven't played werewolf essentially what it is if you've ever played the card game mafia same thing um or different versions on the same game. What it is, is you're all in a town, and one person or a group of people, depending on how many players you have, has a secret role of being a werewolf. They're not like the rest. And it's you have a narrator who walks everyone through, okay, townspeople go to sleep, Um, werewolves wake up, um, point at the person you want to kill tonight. Because it's like it's a narrative play, okay. Close your eyes. Everyone, open your eyes. The narrator will describe how this person died. Now there are other roles like a medic who can come in, like save somebody. They'll get. They'll be asked to open their eyes, point to somebody. If they pick the right person, guess what? That person didn't pass away in their sleep. Um, Werewords adds a twist in in which there's a magical spell that the werewolves know. It's a word or saying. And what's trying to happen is the townspeople, are, they can win one of two ways. They can either get the word, which defeats the spell, and so the werewolves are going to try and distract them from that, or they can wipe out all of the werewolves. So it adds a little bit more player interaction and a purpose for like the day phases. So it's essentially werewolf with some nice modern twists. But this is a game. If you were going to be playing it, it's really for like a group of teenagers, and it's maybe good for some people who, as Josh and I talked about before we started recording, like maybe have a couple beverages in you.
1: Yeah, I I mean, right? It is a, I, all three of these games. Maybe less so with Llama, but definitely with Where Words, and almost certainly with Just One. And and Just One, to be to to be transparent to the listener. (laughs) Just one is the game of these three that I said I would be interested in playing the 100%. game that I would be interested in owning. And, but Werewords and, and just one are, they are party games. They are games to bust out with a group of people at the end of a night after people have had a couple of beverages or are a little slap happy or just kind of hanging out, not really doing a whole lot. And a way to just kind of have fun with friends. I don't think that they are intense games. No. They are more of just an activity to facilitate fun. Right.
0: And so here's the deal. I agree with Josh, and I actually think Just One could and should win this. Just going to call that. Um, Based on everything I was seeing, it was the one table that got the most play, except for the first day where everyone's like, what the heck is Llama? Um, (laughs) Adding the educational lens in, I actually would use just one for a team building exercise for people because you're trying to work together while playing just one I was like what the heck is it because it came around to me a couple times and what's fascinating is like I don't think I'm going to be able to do this I don't think uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to put these together you have this like literally light bulb clear moment of like where you feel like a savant of like I know the word (laughs) And so, like that was a cool feeling that it brought out in players. Um, Where words, there is now a free app that you can download to kind of walk you through that narrator role, but just one is the game that should take it.
1: Yeah, I, I, and actually, that is. I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually one of the the main reasons why. um, If I am still supervising students in the fall. I will most likely be purchasing what want, what, just one for that purpose to yeah. to serve as a kind of a team builder, um, hang out, have some fun, get to know the people around you. Um, again, facilitate fun and facilitate interactions among people, um, I think is, a, is always a nice way to kind of do that. Yeah, so. and
0: so that's everything I experienced with those games. I was kind of just trying to be cut to the point with a lot of that. Um, but here's the deal. It is a huge deal. Like I talked about Ignacy's passion and like his that shock moment when he found out he was nominated. Um, it's a huge deal to be nominated. It's an even bigger deal to get this award. They're going to, if you win, you're going to publish somewhere between, rumors are between like a and 300,000 copies. And that's just in Germany alone. Um, and so like you, you essentially are set um, for life to like, go and try and make other really cool games. Um, And so I wish the best to all of these publishers and congrats on all the success for for these designers. Um, It's a really cool award and we can't wait to share who wins. Um, But Mm -hmm. Josh, like we went way over time on this one and listeners, thanks for leaning in on this one. It was just an important episode to kind of go through. Um, But do you have any kind of closing remarks as we wrap up the show?
1: No, I, I, again, I'll, I'll end with my general statements of thank you once again, listeners for spending some time with us. I know there are a million podcasts out there. There are a million ways to spend your free time. Um, so it does mean a, a lot to us, especially those of you who stuck with us through the end of a very long drawn out episode. We do appreciate that and giving us an opportunity to share our experiences and share the things about board games that really, um, Make our lives a more enjoyable. Uh, uh, experience so thank you so much
0: yeah and I just want to echo everything Josh just said and also encourage you um, we could actually use some more discoverability and if you've been listening to the show or you found value in what we said today we want to just take ask you to take a moment and please rate this um, podcast in whatever podcast app you're listening to it in um, and you may get a shout out on the show for doing that and so just want to put that out there um, just to increase our visibility to other new listeners um, so again my name is Bruce Brown and you can find me on BoardGameGeek as Bruce Brown. Thank you so much for listening to Board Game Impact. We hope that learning about what experiences have been going on for us, especially in this long episode, about all the spiel games and all the craziness that ensued at Board Game Geek um, helps make informed decisions for yourself and this wonderful hobby as well as for your gaming group. You can learn more about us by visiting the website, um, which is boardgameimpact.com. On there, we also have a part of the site where you can check out all the games we've discussed um, and actually have links which... If you purchase a game through those links, it actually helps us support the show. And that is under Games and Gear. If you have any topics that you'd like to have discussed um, or want to reach out to us, you can do that at BoardGameImpact at gmail.com. You can also just hop on over and follow us on Instagram or like the Facebook page, um, which has had phenomenal growth since BGG. Um, It's increased about 150%, which is phenomenal. Um, So thank you all new followers on Facebook. Um, But Instagram and Facebook, both of those are Impact. Josh does have access. I've seen him start posting things, so he is able to now post on the page. So you're seeing posts by him or I, and we will comment with our name um, at the end of the post of like, who posted it? Um, So that way, you know, Um, but also we wanted to take a moment to shout out our phenomenal Patreon backers. Literally y'all help make this dream become a reality. If you uh, want to help support the show or learn about some of the cool things that our Patreon backers get head on over to patreon.com slash board game impact, literally the show is because of them and they really help um, ease the burden of this because um, there are a lot of out-of-pocket expenses that go into making the show a reality. Um, so please do share this uh, podcast, so Board Game Impact, with your friends in your gaming group. Um, do rate the podcast and as you are about to click on to whatever podcast you're going to listen to next, do just make sure to hit that subscribe but also take that moment to just do rate the rate it in the app as well. Um, So until next time, we get to talk to you. Um, We hope this has been helpful. We hope that you get to play some phenomenal games. And we hope that you go out and make a positive impact on the world. Thank you so much.